I'm pulling on my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another drive to work. Okay, well, first thing as I pull out, I realize that it is raining, which for those faithful fans know, probably means a slightly extra long podcast. Um, although, I, I need to point out that uh, Ryan Spain, uh, current R&D member, former um, limited information host, uh, podcast host, um, pointed out to me, after I mentioned that people in Seattle can't drive in the rain, uh, he pointed out a good point. His hypothesis is that people in Seattle can drive in the rain, and that is why people are so slow, because when it's raining, the correct thing to do is drive slow. Anyway, uh, uh, a possible thought for the day. Okay, so last we left, I've been talking about card-by-card uh, card stories in Theros. Um, last we left, we were on sea. Two podcasts I've gotten to see, but uh, hopefully you guys like this podcast. If not, there's a few podcasts for you. I, I hope you like it. In general, you guys seem to like the, uh, what I call the uh, down and dirty in, 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 the, in the design stuff, where I'm talking about actual designs. Um, and uh, anyway, we'll, it's a test. We shall see. So we got up to Colossus of Akros. Um, so the, one of the things that's interesting, and I'll use this as my example, is... One of the things that we've started to do, if you look at um, Champions of Kamigawa, for example, uh, that was us trying to do a world inspired by Japanese mythology. Uh, and it was not particularly popular. Um, it, is, it has gained some popularity uh, over the years. I think the commander format, especially because the, the set is overrunning with legends, uh, legendary creatures, uh, has, has brought some, uh, some current fondness for it. Uh, at the time, it... Uh, Oh, using any metric we have, it did not do well. Um, but both Innistrad and Theros have done much, much better. Um, and I have a hypothesis I'd like to run by you. Um, I think what is going on is what we've learned about top down is that a lot of the joy of top down comes from familiarity. I mean, any of you who's listening to me talk at all about communication theory and stuff, a lot of connecting with an audience is making them feel comfortable with the source material. And, you know, yes, yes, there should be surprises and, and such. Um, but the base of it needs to be very understandable. And the problem we had in Champions Kamigawa is we explored a lot of things that, while being kind of true to the source material, were not very known by the vast majority of our audience. And thus, I just don't think it resonated as clearly with them. Um, and what we did with both Innistrad and Theros is we, we, we said, okay, let's make sure that the the baseline is, stays very close to the source material, and that if you like horror or you like Greek mythology, that a lot of the things you expect are there. Um, and what we've also done is made sure that the things that are better known are lower in commonalities. So yeah, we have a hundred-handed one, but it's not a common card. It's a rare card. Um, so the people that want the little more obscure stuff we have, but that's not what we're basing our set around. It's not like it's a set all around, hey, the hundred-handed one, and there's a whole bunch of hundred-handed one, because the average person doesn't know that from Greek mythology, even though it actually is in Greek mythology. Um, and so the idea is, you want your lower rarities to be the more approachable, more known stuff, and your higher rarities can be a little more experimental. Also, in general, we have chosen to sort of, um, uh, we want to meet a lot of expectations, so we definitely have uh, hit more of what we'll call low-hanging fruit. Um, one of the big arguments is, when you do inspirations, is how much of low-hanging fruit do you hit? Uh, in Champions of Kamigawa, the idea was, well, let's, let's not do all the low-hanging fruit. Let's, do, you know, let's be a little more eclectic. Uh, and the problem there was, people like low-hanging fruit. 
You know what people eat when they get to the tree? They eat the low-hanging fruit. Um, and I, I don't think you should besmirch it. Do not besmirch the low-hanging fruit. Uh, it is tasty. And it is uh, uh, reachable. So we are definitely trying to mix things up, and we're trying to add some new elements that are our own, and we're trying to do our take on things. And our gods are not the Greek gods, but they're definitely inspired by the Greek gods and have a lot of the Greek godness to them. Um, but anyway, the reason I bring this up is Colossus of, of our Akros was inspired by... Dun, 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 a movie called Jason and the Argonauts. Um, so there was a series of movies, I think they were made in the 70s, that had, at the time, uh, well, maybe at the time it was bad uh, bad uh, uh, special effects. I don't know. Maybe they're awesome special effects. It's very, hard. it's very hard to tell in modern day, looking back at old special effects, whether they were cutting edge for the time or not. Maybe they were. Um, but anyway, there's a, a sequence where there's a giant statue, I think of an Argonaut, um, and they get attacked by it. Uh, and anyway, this was inspired by that, by the giant statue coming to life and attacking you. Um, and so one of the things we definitely tried to do is we're very cognizant of pop culture. Um, I know in Innistrad, for example, um, one of the things we talked about when we were doing Innistrad is how should the zombies be? And the reality is there weren't a lot... The, the source material we were borrowing from, there weren't a lot of zombies. They were like Frankenstein was the zombies, I guess. The zombies were more, were more along the line of Frankenstein um, and less along the line of Dawn of the Dead. But we're like, look, people expect Dawn of the Dead. I don't care if Dawn of the Dead necessarily lines up with the source material. It's what people expect from, from it. That if you have a bunch of zombies, you're expecting, especially in black, Dawn of the Dead zombies. And so we made sure to deliver that, even though that wasn't 100% to follow the sort of the, the era we were coming from and looking at our source material. Um, and that pop culture has shaped perceptions of things. And that one of the big things is... Um, so I'll use my example here. Uh, there's a game that we made long ago called... What Were You Thinking? Uh, Richard Garfield made it. Uh, it's called Hive Mind in Design. And the idea of the game is you get asked a question and then everybody is supposed to write down the answers that they think everybody else is going to write. Um, and the idea is you're, you're trying to get the answer that's the most popular answer. So one day... Uh, it's like, name some number of insects. Uh, and one of the best answers was spider. And someone then said, what do you mean spider? Spider's not even an insect. And the answer was, it didn't matter. The point was to write down the most popular answers. Not to write down the right answers. Yes, yeah, spider's a pretty poor answer for what's the most popular insect uh, in the fact that it's not an insect. But, in a game where you're trying to write down what other people are writing down, maybe spider is the right thing. In fact, it was, because it was in the top, like... Uh, you got a lot of points for writing Spider down because a lot of people wrote it down. Uh, and the funny thing was, a lot of the people who wrote it down knew it wasn't an insect, but they thought enough other people would write it down that they wrote it down. Anyway, that's important. And I do believe when we talk about how we do top-down stuff, I, I think it's very, very important to understand that, like, the influence of pop culture is important because when people... Here's an important thing also to remember. People don't know where, where they get their information from. This is a very important thing I've learned uh, in the way humans process information. The, um, where, the information that you learn and where you learned the information from are actually not stored in the same place in the brain. In fact, one of them goes into like long-term information and one goes into more short-term information because your brain says, oh, I need the information. Oh, I need to know that. So it puts it into long-term. But where I got it from is not a super crucial thing. And so that goes into shorter-term memory. So what happens is with time... You remember what you learned, but you don't always remember where you learned it. Um, and the reason I learned this in school is um, when you study um, uh, the effects of uh, 
uh, communications, one of the things about television and movies, for example, is it will teach people things, and the people will learn that as facts, and then forget that they saw it in a movie. Because if you ask the average person how realistic is TV, they're like, oh, you know, TV's not that realistic, you know, TV shows and such. Um, but they'll learn something, and if they don't know any better, they'll put it in their head, and, and then they forget they learned it from television. And so one of the real powerful things about television is it, it fills in people's knowledge gaps, but it's not necessarily true. And so it is very... Uh, TV has a, a great ability to sort of subconsciously almost teach people things, because they will learn things, kind of know they're not true, then forget where they learned them, and then assume they're true because they know them. Anyway, little little communications for you. Okay, next, Curse of the Swine. Um, so in the Odyssey, I talked about uh, the Iliad last time, which was the Trojan War. Uh, the Odyssey is the second book in which uh, Odysseus, our hero, tries to get home. He has uh, pissed off Poseidon, uh, and he's in a ship trying to get home, so Poseidon messes with him for like... I don't know, eight, ten years. Uh, one of the places he ends up is on an island where there's a sorceress named Circe, and Circe turns all his men into pigs. Uh, it's a pretty famous story. Um, anyway, uh, we wanted to capture that, uh, and so Curse of the Swine is us doing a little turn men into pigs, you know, uh, the Odysseus men into pigs. Uh, originally, by the way, the card was a devotion card that it um, turned a certain number of creatures based on your devotion. Um, but it ended up being, it made more sense just to turn all creatures rather than necessarily just some creatures. And um, they, they ended up making Master of Waves the devotion card in Mythic Blue, I mean, other than Thassa. Um, so, anyway, uh, the Curse of the Swine, uh, definitely, I mean, we wanted to hit a trope. Development tweaked it a little bit, but, I mean, it, it stayed mostly as, as we made it. I mean, minus the devotion, obviously. Um, okay, Cutthroat Maneuver. Oh, okay. This is a bestow card. Um, so this card gives plus two, plus two, and lifelink. The reason I'm bringing this up was, I talked, I talked about this uh, in a previous podcast. Uh, I just want to sort of point it out that when we were making bestow cards, especially uh, when we are making common and uncommon, that we wanted to make sure that they were easy to process. And so the way we did that was we lined them up. We made cycles. And instead of doing... Uh, vanilla stuff with different numbers, which is harder actually to process, we made them all the same so that they have the same bonus. So the cycle that Cutthroat Maneuver is in, they're all uh, plus two, plus two, uh, um, and uh, an ability, lifelink in black. Anyway, one of the things to remember, and I'll stress this again, is that when you were designing, uh, by the way, I, 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 it's called Mindspace. I think I called it Mindshare in a podcast a couple, a couple uh, times ago. It's always important to remember Mindspace is that your audience only has so much they can absorb. And whenever you can use things to consolidate information so that they can have fun... Because one of the things to remember is that every card does not need to be different. That does not make the game more fun if every card is radically different from every card. Uh, there's a point at which it's just overwhelming. We want to make sure that the audience grasps and understands what's going on. Also, because we have a whole block to do, we want to make sure that we give ourselves room to grow. So there's really, really no reason when you're introducing a new mechanic in the first set, you know, in the fall set of a block, not to try to do the simplest version that's the easiest to rock onto. You want your audience to have, you know, the simplest thing to jump on and learn, and you want to give yourself some room to grow so as the block goes along, you can evolve and do things. Okay, Dark Betrayal. So I, I, this, I'm going to talk about this cycle. This, this cycle is the color hurts itself cycle. Uh, and Dark Betrayal is black killing a black creature. Um, so the reason the cycle came up was not a design thing. Design did not make the cycle. Uh, this got made in development. Uh, and I assume 
Usually when development makes a cycle, it's because they want something for constructed. That's usually why a cycle gets made. Um, or especially a cycle like this. Uh, I mean, they might make a cycle that's using themes of the set. But this really is separate from the themes of the set. So I do not know for a fact why they made the cycle, but knowing development and knowing that it didn't tie directly into the themes of the set, uh, I mean, it fits, but it, it wasn't using one of the, you know, the mechanics of the set. Uh, it seems like it's something the development wanted for constructive. That's my, my guess. And these cards are, they, they seem fairly, I mean, push enough that uh, I assume these are meant to be sideboard cards. Next, Elspeth, Sun Champion. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, so let's talk about how Elspeth ended up in the set. Okay, so like I said, when I first started, um, when I first started, when, 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 once again, let, let, my caveat is, when I make a story, it's not the story, it's just me trying to fill an archetype. Really, the story I was trying to tell was I wanted an evil planeswalker taking advantage of the Greek world uh, and the gods to create, uh, originally he was going to bring their dreams to life. Um, but it shifted with time, and then the dreams ended up being more the realm of the gods, and... Um, so what happened was, in my original version of the story, which, which, which is a super early version, which is not, it's not a real version, it's more of a, me trying to make a hypothesis. But anyway, that caveat out of the way. Uh, originally, I had Jace in it, because I thought, if you're going to have Dark Jace, you need Jace, because it's much more exciting when the person gets to meet their own Dark Mirror. You know, I mean, Batman could fight Bizarro, but not as exciting as Superman fighting Bizarro, so. Um, and uh, so originally when I pitched this, I, I suggested Jace. Uh, they were really gung-ho is they were trying to get a, the, a real Greek feel. And so the story they want to tell, and, and I, the, the, correct, the correct story for a Greek block is a story that had a little more Greek feel to it. And so they really, they were interested in telling the story of a reluctant hero. Um, that's another trope of, uh, of um, Greek, a Greek drama, is the idea of the hero that uh, is destined to, to be a hero, but he doesn't want it. Uh, and the idea of the reluctant hero is, I mean, the trope is that the hero is trying to get away. They don't want the responsibility, that they've suffered responsibility in the past and things have gone poorly. Um, in fact, for those that are fans of the Weatherlight Saga, the beginning of the Weatherlight Saga, um, Gerard is a reluctant hero. He had a bad experience with the Weatherlight. He didn't want to go back. Now, he gets drawn back, and that's the way the reluctant hero trope works, is something makes them have to go back. In the Weatherlight Saga, Sisse, his mentor, got kidnapped. And he had to go rescue her. Um, in this story, Elbeth comes to, um, comes to Theros because she feels like in a world with gods, how is she going to be needed? She's not, you know, she is going to be, she, will, she, she won't be so special in a world with gods. And no one will expect anything of her. Uh, and ironically, the gods need her. Uh, Heliod needs her and, and sort of, uh, in, you know, is the one that calls her up. And, and the, the true thing of a reluctant hero is, even though they don't want to be a hero, when the time comes, they do step up and they become the hero they need to be. Uh, and usually by becoming the hero, they learn important things, which she will. Um, so the key about Elsbeth is one of the things they liked about Elsbeth was they wanted to take one of our planeswalkers and be able to dress them up in sort of Greek gear and have a neat look to it. And they thought that Elsbeth worked really well. Um, one of the flavors we've been trying to do with the planeswalkers, in fact, uh, Dan Emmons, who's one of, the, the, one of my designers on the design team, uh, is, has a little sub side project where he's been documenting every planeswalker and what they do and trying to make sure that when we do planeswalkers that we are not being inconsistent. Uh, we made a Liliana that really didn't fit the other Lilianas and people were complaining. We're like, okay, you're right. We had to be more consistent with the planeswalkers. And so Dan is now monitoring that. Um, so Elsbeth has her army. She summons her creatures. 
Uh, and then one of the telltale signs of her is she makes token creatures, soldiers. Um, and so we want to repeat that. Um, and in general, by the way, her basic thing is she's like, I make soldiers, I help my soldiers, and then usually, um, you know, she, she's also a fighter. And so in the middle thing, um, so basically what we did is we, she makes her soldiers, she kills things, big things, because she kills monsters. Um, uh, and one of the big things I'll get to is one of the big parts of the story is we wanted this big scene of her fighting a Hydra because we wanted it on the packaging. Um, we felt like we were trying to look for the iconic monster and a Hydra. A Hydra was, was impressive looking and it felt very Greek, Greek mythology. So we decided to do a Hydra. Um, anyway, uh, so her first ability is to make soldiers. Second ability is to kill big things. Third ability is to help the soldiers. Um, and Elsbeth, I think, is, has become a very, uh, people are very fond of Elsbeth. Um, one of the things that's interesting is certain colors have really cemented around a Planeswalkers that just becomes the one that people define the color with. And other colors, uh, not quite as much. I mean, white is the color where I believe that Ajani and Gideon and Elsbeth are all been sort of jockeying to be who is the, who's the, the key white person. Uh, and the, I think what happened was Ajani early on was the one that got the least, um, traction of the original Lorwyn 5, um, our hypothesis is because he's not human, and that is just a little bit harder to relate to a non-human. Um, I, there's people who love a Johnny, so I'm not trying to besmirch a Johnny. I like a Johnny, um, but anyway, White's definitely the one that's been trying to, you know, um, settle down and like who's who's his key planeswalker. Um, anything else about Elsbeth? Uh, I guess that's mostly. But we'll talk about some other stuff as we go along. I'll talk about her Hydra fighting when we get to the card that she fights a Hydra on. Next is a Faraz Warden. Okay, so she is a tapper, but unlike most tappers, she only taps creatures with power three or less. Okay, so this is a card I wanted to talk about, uh, another concept, which is um, the Biodome. Um, now, we sometimes use Biodome in a negative context, which means when things get too... Um, so what when you design a set... Um, you are creating two things. You're creating a world that's going to live by itself. That's what we call the biodome. Usually it's limited. Uh, and you're making a set that's going to interact with other sets in magic. That you use that's more constructed. Um, and the idea is um, design is not well suited. I mean, we clearly are aware of things in general, what's going on. We're aware of big pictures, what mechanically is happening. And we definitely make overlaps between mechanics between blocks for synergy. Um, but we are not up to date on like what, where exactly the metagame is. That's what development does and not design. And so we have a little less say on how things are going to interact in big picture. I mean, we, we definitely interact mechanics big picture. Like, oh, this mechanic and that mechanic will go to, well together. But we, we're, we're not fine-tuning things. Development's more fine-tuning. Um, so design spends a little more time on the biodome, which is, okay, we're in a world in which this is all you have. And the attractiveness to a designer of the biodome and the dangers, is that you have a lot more control. That, um, th- as far as Warden is an example of, we wanted to build an environment where you were crafting things and building up things and, you know, making giant heroes and monsters and, and really sort of, you know, evolving your creature over time. Uh, the problem was that a normal magic set has a lot of things that would easily negate that. Tapping being a good thing. Well, if I spend, you know, three cards and lots of mana to make this giant creature, and you can spend one mana every turn just to tap it, oh, well, that, that really negates a lot of what I'm doing. And so what we decided was, 
that we were going... I mean, there's answers, and we made sure there are answers. The answers are a little bit different than normal, and they definitely don't punish the play pattern we wanted as much as, as, as normal magic. So this, uh, far as Warden's example of a card, we're like, okay, we still want you to have some control, but you know what? We're going to build in a weakness to the tapper. The tapper's going to be bad against big things. Meaning, so, not only when you build a big thing aren't you punished, but also, when you're looking at the set, uh, it's one of the cards that encourages you to build big things. That we want the messaging that big things are better. Not that that means tons of messaging, because... Uh, big things are better uh, in, in a lot of ways. Although, building things up with lots of cards can be a problem. Um, so anyway, as far as Warden, it's just an example of us sort of saying, we need to craft the environment. You have to be aware of your biodome. Um, you want to be careful not to go too crazy, because sometimes you can make things work. Um, Rise of the Drazi had this problem a little bit, where it was like super, super biodome Like, in this world, you can do this, but once you get outside this world, it was a lot harder to do. Um, and... You... You can get trapped in the world of, like, I'm going to make this work to such an extreme that things don't eat. Like, one of the problems... So Rise of the Drazi, for those that don't know, historically, uh, is an interesting set in which it split our audience. Uh, The casual players did not like it, uh, did not play it much, did not buy it much. The advanced players loved it, especially in Limited. They loved it. And so what we found was that when you get too biodome the real pe- the people that just dig in and love limited, they're fine with the biodome because they're like, okay, what crazy thing is going on now? Um, but what we found is the casual player, if you just push it too much, it's just they have nothing to, to, to hang their hat on, if you will, that part of being able to sort of deal in a limited environment is having something that you know to be true and being able to work with that. And while we can shift some things, um, Rise of Drive was shifted a little bit too much for the, the more casual limited player. Um, but on, on the flip side, you know, the, the more advanced player really did enjoy that because it, it was just so different from what magic normally is. Uh, also, in general, I think when you slow things down immensely, uh, a lot of the limited players really enjoy that because it allows a lot more give and play um, and it allows a lot more... It does make it easy for the better player to win um, because uh, usually the longer the game goes, the more decisions get made, the better player just will make more of the decisions correct and so they will win. Um, so long games tend to reward experienced players. That's why experienced players like control. Okay. Uh, next, Erebus, God of the Dead. Um, a couple things about Erebus. First is, um, so the original ability of Erebus, because he was always God of the Dead, was um, you can play creatures from your graveyard. That was his ability. Um, and I think, I think when they died, they got exiled. I think while he was in play, creatures died to exile, but he could play creatures out of the graveyard. I think that's how it worked. Um, and that was an awesome ability, and it got to the dead and fit really well. Um, and then what ended up happening was it was a little too good, and development had to kill it. Um, which often happens sometimes with pretty cool abilities, is they're good because they're a little too good. Um, so Erebus is very interesting. One of the things I enjoy quite a bit, uh, so Brady Downermith, who was the former creative director, uh, he's no longer with us, but he was with Magic for a long, long time. Um, if you liked Mirrodin, if you liked the Guilds of Ravnica, if you, you know, there's a lot of stuff that Brady had his hand in big time. Um, anyway, uh, the way the gods worked is each member of the creative team, or five members of the creative team, took one of the gods and wrote, the, wrote up the god. And Brady took up Erebus. And one of the things Brady was trying to do, uh, the reason he took Erebus is black is tricky. Um, it's very easy um, to fall in the habit of just doing hee-hee. You know, like, like, for example, if you do God of the Underworld, 
it's so easy to get to like Hades from the Hercules cartoon from Disney's Hercules, where it's like you know like a personified evil with a flaming head, you know. Um, and that Brady wanted a little more subtlety to it. That he wanted a, a God of the Dead that was a little more remorseful and not so so gleefully evil. Um, and that he sees it as a responsibility and something he needs to do, but that it's not. It's his duty, you know. It, it's something that he has to do. And anyway, it's an interesting take on Black, and I think that um, I think Black. It's very easy for Black just to become, you know, sort of maniacal evil, you know, stereotypical maniacal evil. And uh, we try hard from time to time to just carve other shades into it. It's not that Black can't be evil. Obviously, it can. It, it does it quite well. But it doesn't always have to be evil. And uh, I really appreciate what a lot of stuff Brady did with um, Erebus to try, try to give him a little more, um, a little more feel. Okay, now that I'm talking about Erebus, I can talk about the gods, the design of the gods. Okay, so here's what happened. Um, when I made the gods, I knew the gods were going to be very important. Uh, Aaron and I had a lot of talks about it. I said we we're going to do something special. Um, but there were a lot of other moving pieces. And when I actually handed off the file to um, Eric Lauer, who was the lead developer for the set, I said to him, everything is done except the gods. The gods aren't done. We've we got to fix the gods. I said, but, you know, give, give me some time. I'll put a team together, and we'll focus on the gods. I, I'd been focusing on so many other things that I, I knew the gods needed to get done. But the other thing to remember is um, early development is about balance and a lot about limited. And so, like, some Mythic Rare cards, we have a little bit of time that you can play test limited without uh, some Mythic Rares and really get a sense of environment. And so, um, plus, another important thing is early in development is you have to concept cards. You have to choose cards to get concepted, meaning we have to figure out what cards are so that they can um, do the illustrations. Well, it turns out the gods, they've spent lots of time and energy. You know, it was going to, they were going to put that in the first art wave and like draw the gods that are from our style guide. So I knew that we had a little bit of time on the rules text because, you know, Eric would be able to put them into uh, the style guide. I'm sorry, be able to put them into um, card, the first wave of card concepting and um, it wouldn't affect limited. So I knew I had a little bit of time. That's just me sort of knowing the process. Um, and there was a lot going on. We threw out a lot of moving parts. And so um, anyway, so what happened was um, once a week, my design team has a design team meeting. It's just a meeting for the designers. So um, it is me, my design manager, um, uh, Mark Gottlieb, who... Uh, for, I explained this once before, but I oversee the technical part of it, and he oversees... I oversee the sort of the product, and he oversees the people. So he's the manager for the team. Um, but I'm responsible for all their technical growth and, and uh, sort of grooming them as designers. And then Mark's in charge of all the managerial stuff, of monitoring their time and making sure that they are on enough projects and the right projects, and that he does all the management, uh, pe- you know, the people management. Um, so the design team is me, Mark Gottlieb, uh, Ken Nagel, Ethan Fleischer, Sean Main, and um, Dan Emmons. Um, and uh, uh, we meet once a week um, to talk about design issues, whatever, whatever, it is, whatever it is on our mind. And uh, it's a place where we can talk super designy. Um, sometimes we'll look at other, other designs from other areas, or we'll, we'll talk about things we're doing, or... Uh, there's a lot of updating, so everyone's aware of what's going on in design different projects. Um, but anyway, it's a chance for the designers can talk design. So I used one of our meetings to brainstorm on the gods. And so we came up with an interesting idea. So the idea we had is, when you summon the gods, they didn't go into the battlefield. They went to a new zone. The Nyx zone. And the idea was, the gods, while in Nyx, have an ability that affects you. They have an enchantment-like ability. They are enchantment creatures. 
Um, but if your devotion was strong enough, you could bring them to the battlefield and then they could fight for you. But if they ever died in the battlefield, they went back to Nyx. That was our original version. Um, and so when Eric got a hold of them, I think he liked the general gist of what it was. Is you summon the god, he has sort of an enchantment effect, um, you need to have enough devotion, and then he's tangible and he can fight for you. Um, and so the idea that... Uh, development did a couple things. And then another, another good example of how develop, design and development work together. Design was trying really hard to get the concept, the idea. You know, it's a god, and he's, he has this enchantment-like feel, and if you have enough devotion, you can, you can bring him so he he's, takes form, and you can, now he can fight for you. Um, all that came from design. But a lot of the, the execution, the development changed a lot of things about the execution. Number one, they said, okay, we don't need, a, we don't need another zone, no Nick zone. We'll just put him on the battlefield. Number two... Um, the way like, our version was it was hard to destroy them because when you destroyed them they went back to next there's no next so fine make them indestructible you can't destroy them um, you know and then he just said okay well, let's sit on the battlefield they're, they're an enchantment you know until you make them a creature they're just an enchantment you know or I don't, I don't know if they have creature status I'm not sure how that works but um, the idea is they'll function like an enchantment until such a time that you um, have your devotion I think that is what turns them into creatures uh, I mean I know devotion turns into creatures but I think they become creatures at that point um, and so he also, I mean, uh, the fact that they sat in play and had devotion and now they helped themselves a little bit and they had about, they balanced that. Um, but most of what they did is, which is a nice example of design had some pretty out there ideas to make something that was very different. And then development said, well, what's the special things about them? And recrafted them to make something that just would play a little better and function a little better. Um, I think in a lot of ways that is a perfect example, a little microcosm of design development. The design's job is to kind of be out there and get very cool and neat things. And development's job is to ground it and make sure that it's done in a way that's, that's playable and balanceable and such. Anyway, that is the gods. Okay, next, Felhide Minotaur. Ah, the fate of the Minotaurs! So one of the things... Uh, so one of the things that happens sometimes is... Um, I talk a lot of time where design development sometimes will butt up against things. Design creative will sometimes butt up. Uh, and the, the Minotaurs is a good example. So one of the things that happened early on was I really wanted Minotaurs to be in red and black and to be to have an, a little aggro play and that one of the draft strategies in red and black was you could draft Minotaurs. So one of the problems that happened, though, is that the creative team came to us and said, look, Minotaurs are decently big. You can't make little teeny Minotaurs. Um, and so what they said to us is, okay, so for Theros, the guideline was uh, the power and toughness combined had to be at least five for uh, a creature to be a Minotaur. That was big enough. That two, three, or three, two is big enough it could be a Minotaur. Um, but one of the problems is if you're trying to make a more aggressive deck, it's problematic if none of them are small. You know, they, We're talking, that's like three mana at the lowest. And you, you might want one mana or two mana. So we, we weren't able to do that. Um, the other problem we ran into was that um, we wanted more Minotaurs. Than, like, uh, Jenna was trying to fit all sorts of stuff in the set. And there's a world for filled with, with Greek mythology. The reason we chose it was there's so many cool neat things to do. And so there wasn't as much room for as many Minotaurs as we wanted. Um, and the thing that we were torn between is there was a tribal component for Minotaurs, but it wasn't, it wasn't like this was a tribal block in which it was a major, major thing. It was more of a minor thing. 
And so we want enough minotaurs to make the tribal thing work, but creative needed enough space to be able to do all the cool things from Greek mythology. And so we kind of find a middle ground um, that, I mean, it, if design had its way and we had no creative concerns, and, and be aware, the creative concerns are important. Just because I'm saying design wants something doesn't mean that design should get everything it wants. The creative, the creative concerns are very important. I'm just sort of saying, you know, ex- excluding the creative concerns, the design concerns probably wanted more minotaurs. In fact, the design originally had more minotaurs. Um, and it got scaled back a little bit because of trying to make sure that we can represent the different things we needed to. Um, now, the good news is this is a whole block. There's more minotaurs coming. You know, um, uh, we, we, we knew that we wanted a little more minotaurs. And the, the compromise was, okay, we'll have some this step, but more minotaurs are coming. Um, so Felhide is funny in my mind in that it's... Uh, I feel like the set is all about thumbing its nose at uh, at um, Hurlin Minotaur, uh, and this is like a two-three in black. So black, uh, I guess black. Um, well, anyway, uh, it's a two-three for two uh, B rather than two C, you know, two C rather than one CC. Um, but anyway, the Hurlin Minotaur has a, a much bigger thumbing coming up. Uh, feral invocation plus two plus two and flash. Oh, it's an aura that gives plus two plus two and has flash. Um, so one of the things we did early on, and this is one of the remnants of that, is we said, okay, let's, today's brainstorm is, let's come up with every card we can that you would normally see in the magic set, but done as an aura. Uh, and so this card was giant growth done as an aura. Well, how do you do giant growth as an aura? Well, you do power and toughness boosting, and you make it flash. And then, haha, surprise, I giant growth my guy. Um... Now, it's permanent, so that's a little bit different. That's why it's plus two plus two and not plus three plus three. Um, but this card came from that brainstorming session, which is, let's, let's turn existing cards into auras, because we were trying to up our aura space a little bit. And part of that was to figure out things that we needed to do, because magic always does it, but try to move it into the aura space. And that's what this card was doing. Next, Fleet Feather Sandals. Um, this was another card we made in design. Um, we made a list of things we had to do, and one of the things we had to do was wing sandals. Uh, for those that aren't familiar, um, Hermes, who is the uh, messenger of the gods, one of the gods, and he's the messenger, um, he runs around super fast, and one of the items he wears is winged sandals, which allow him to fly. Actually, I don't even know if the winged sandals allow him to fly. He can't fly. I always assume it's the winged sandals. Anyway, um, well, obviously the design assumes that makes him fly. Uh, so what we wanted to do is we wanted it to be fast and we wanted it to, to allow you to fly because that's what the winged sandals do. And so we gave it flying and we gave it hey, uh, hexproof. We gave it hexproof, I think. Is that correct? Uh, no, we have haste. Uh, we have haste. Oh, because hexproof is annoying. Um, yeah, evasion hexproof is annoying. So that's why we didn't give hexproof. I think we talked about hexproof, but we gave it haste. Um, the thing about speed is there's a couple of different ways to portray speed. Haste is one way to portray speed. Um, hexproof is another way. Um, the, the couple of, uh, first strike is a, a way there's a couple of different ways to do speed um, but anyway flying and haste felt like a pretty cool thing um, the, the, the two mechanics combo very nicely together um, and we made that very early in design um, the numbers might have changed but other than the numbers changing uh, I mean it, it was pretty much as we designed it in the meeting next flesh mad steed okay so I talked about this in my article a bit so the mares of Diomedes uh, if, you, if you ever read about Hercules and his labors, his 12 labors. So real quickly, Hercules is a demigod. Uh, his dad is Zeus. I forget who his mom is, but he's a demigod, so not a god. Um, and uh, Hera does not like Hercules because uh, it's her husband's kid, but not her kid. And uh, Although in 
back in the back in Greek mythology, Zeus had a lot of kids with a lot of different people. Uh, and he, anyway, I won't go there. This is a family friendly, uh, family friendly podcast. Um, so uh, Hercules was sent on twelve labors. Um, one of the labors was he had to tame the mare, the, the mares of Diomedes, uh, and they were carnivorous. Uh, there were like three of them, I think. They were carnivorous. They were giant beasts, and they they uh, they ate thing, they ate flesh, I think. And anyway, um, this was another thing that uh, you know, carnivorous horses was another thing that uh, Ethan was trying to get in the file. Um, a lot of people are like, but wait, these are supposed to be mighty creatures, and this is a little dinky guy. It's like, okay, I, I do know that this one is not, for those true mythological buffs, this one is did not hit the trope quite as dead-on as some of the others. We won the, the, the cannibalistic horses, you know, the flesh-eating horses. We got them. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, probably in the story they're a little bigger, but, you know, dim, dims, the, dims the apples. Uh, that This was an example of a card that we needed. We needed some simple cards, and Ethan actually made this card to be the mirrors, and it actually worked pretty well. And so, you know, sometimes you have super complex cards, sometimes you need simple cards, and we liked the simple card. Next, Gift of Immortality. So one of the uh, recurring themes of Greek mythology is mortals becoming gods, or at least becoming immortal. Um, that apparently the gods had the means by which to give mortals immortality. Um, and there are, there are a bunch of different stories about how um, they get immortality. So we decided to make an aura that represented immortality. We went through a lot of changes only because, like, the funny thing is we knew what we wanted, right? The idea is you put this thing on and pretty much you can't die. You're immortal. Um, but how to make that work? And the problem we were running into is there's a lot of ways to, like, if you put something on and goes, I have protection from everything, there's a, there are a bunch of ways that still killed it. And it, it felt bad to go, you know, I have the gift of immortality. Well, wrath of God. Well, I'm dead. Well, that didn't feel so good. And I did it, you know. And so... Um, we finally found a thing that basically keeps it alive. It, it, it's, it's pretty hard to kill something with the gift of immortality. Um, and I'm happy that, that once we're all said and done and the dust settled, that people really liked it. I think that's, that's pretty cool. Okay, next it. Gray Merchant of Asphodel. Uh, so let me talk a little bit about devotion. So I talked about how devotion, we got devotion in the first place. Um, but let me talk a little bit about how we, how we decided to put in the set. So I mentioned this briefly last time that one of the things that we do is we decided to take each of the mechanics, and even though the mechanics showed up in most of the colors, that's not true in every set, but in this set we wanted a lot of the things we represent, like devotion, for example. I didn't want just some colors to be devoted to their gods. I wanted all the colors to be devoted to their gods. So I wanted to do a little devotion everywhere, but we mixed it up as far as how much we did and what rarity we did. So, for example, blue, ironically, has only two in Mythic Rare Happen to be very good, and so yeah, there's a deck with them, but um, it, it doesn't have much role in limited. So the reason we chose black and green is they're the two colors that naturally have the most mana symbols at common. Uh, black, because black is just the color that pushes you toward using itself the most. Black has, if you ever go to the history of magic, there's just more black mana symbols and things than other, other things. Um, early on, that had to do with dark ritual. But it's sort of like Dark Ritual went away, but that attribute carried on. So black still has a little bit more colored mana than most. Um, the reason green has more colored mana, I think this has to do that it's bigger. Um, so one of the things is, if I have a two-cost card and I make it uh, CC, seeing colored mana, so let's say green. I make it green, green. That's hard to cast. You need to have two forests out, ideally on turn two, which means, well, how many forests are in my deck if I'm hoping to have two forests by my second turn? 
Um, now, if you have a six mana card, which is four green green, which four colorless and two green, um, well, you need green, yeah, but you have some time to get it. You don't need to have that much green to have a hope of playing it. And so the higher, more expensive stuff can have more green mana in them, and green just has larger creatures in common. So green's number two, uh, mostly because if it has larger things, it ends up having more mana. So we put a devotion in limited into the two colors that most often will have um, extra colored mana at lower rarities. Um, uh, and the idea was, with devotion, was we knew that there were fun build-arounds. Um, the thing I like about devotion is it tells you what to do. You know, it re- very much says, okay, you, you want to really, you want to devote yourself to devotion? Pick a color. I'll tell you what color, this color. Um, and I, we had just finished off uh, Return of Ravnica, which is, you know, limited, super, I mean, it's almost impossible to play monocolored in um, Return of Ravnica. And so I wanted to make sure in Theros that there were strategies that you could play monocolor. And one thing that I liked about Devotion is it really, really pushed you in that direction, right? It really allowed, it's one of the strategies that allows monocolor play. Now, the goal of Theros was not that everybody played monocolor play. In fact, there's lots and lots of stuff encouraging two-color play um, and a little bit beyond that. Um, but we wanted to make sure there's some monocolor play. We wanted to make sure that our pendulum you know, gets pushed in different directions. So I liked the fact that there was a new tool for Constructed where monocolor could matter. Um, the fact that the previous block had some hybrid in it was nice because hybrid plays nicely with Devotion, uh, even though, ironically, normal multicolor does not play... Well, I guess normal multicolor has mana symbols in it, so it can, although it's hard to play monocolor decks with, with uh, obviously, with gold cards, or traditional gold cards. Um, but anyway, uh, this has become sort of the poster child of Black Devotion Limited. It's very powerful, um, and you know, it has a pretty huge swing. So I'm, I'm happy with it. I'm glad we made it. And um, it was a card... It's one of the first cards we made with Devotion. We made early Devotion stuff. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm always happy we make a card and it, people like it. Um, final story of the day is Hero's Downfall. I told the story uh, in my column, but I will, I will tell a little, more, a little more detail, though I'm coming up to work. So I will finish the story before I, I, uh, I finish. Um, okay, so the... Um, Basically, the story is, Eric Lauer comes to me and says, we're having a problem, Mark. Black, in general, is not seeing as much play in Constructed, and we need to help it. And so Eric says, well, there are... One of the problems is there's three card types that Black really has trouble with. Uh, It has no artifact removal. It has no enchantment removal. And barring a few cards, none of which are currently in Standard, it doesn't have a lot of answers to Planeswalkers. Um, And so we need to provide answers to one of those three things. And so I said, um, I mean, the reason he was coming to me as, as the color pie guy, um, and so I said to him, is, oh, oh that, that is easy. Um, um, while black destroying artifacts or enchantments is not per- great for black and has a lot of uh, issues, black killing planeswalkers is fine, 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 just from a, from a color pie philosophy level, right? Black has no problem killing things. Death is one of... It's, death, death is Black's number one weapon. Is death. Well, guess what? Planeswalkers can die. So if anybody's going to kill Planeswalkers, Black is the perfect person to kill Planeswalkers. And so I said to Eric, you know, you want to make mono-black uh, Planeswalker destruction, that's okay. I mean, that, that is the color. If you were to tell me one of the colors is going to kill Planeswalkers, in a heartbeat I pick Black. Black's the card that kills things. So I said, okay. Um, and the only thing I asked of him is I said, look, um... 
I would just like you not to make it too low in rarity because planeswalkers are a super special thing. And you know what? It shouldn't be that easy to kill a planeswalker from a knowledge standpoint. It's not like planeswalkers are a rare item, but it's a very common spell to learn to kill a planeswalker, you know. And so I said to him, I just didn't want it too low in rarity, that I wanted it to be something special. Um, for constructive purposes, it being rare didn't matter, um, but for limited it would. And I'm like, okay, I, I don't want it to be this limited bomb, or not limited bomb, but I, I, I didn't want it to be something that just, like, it's so easy to kill planeswalkers in black. Um, and so I wanted it to be a tool, and since we are talking about constructed, uh, I wanted it to be something that Eric could have for constructed. So anyway, that is how Hero's Downfall came to be. So now I look and I am at work. And, as predicted, it took a little extra time because it was rain today. Um, so anyway, I hope you enjoyed. I, I, I got through a whole bunch more cards. I, I got plenty left because I'm on H, obviously. So we'll, we'll continue until this is done. But anyway, I hope you guys were enjoying my uh, trip through Theros today and all the d- different card stories. Um, but it is time for me to stop telling stories and to start making magic. I'll talk to you guys. I'll talk to you guys next time. Ciao.